the epistle lesson, hear the word of God. It is given to and for you from the book of Romans. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. But not only that, we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. For why we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely anyone will die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually die. But God proves his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word of our Lord. It is a joy to be preaching from this pulpit this morning. I have served here in this congregation for the last 12 years, first as the director of children's ministry and now in educational ministries. And in two weeks, after one last round of VBS, Vacation Bible School, woohoo! I am wrapping up my time in this position and next month moving down to the Washington DC area to live again with my husband <laughs> who has been working who has been working down there this year and a half. Friends, it is a big summer for every member of our family. So many endings, so many beginnings. Just this last week, we graduated our youngest from high school. Last month, we graduated our middle son from college. Next, at the end of the summer, our youngest is starting college. Our oldest is starting graduate school. And not to be outdone, I too am starting graduate school in the fall. I am starting a Master of Christian Practice program at Duke Divinity School. It's a hybrid degree, a little bit of on-campus learning, probably more remote learning. But right now, right here, I am so happy to be with each of you, to be with my family, my family of God. I love a good story. Bible stories, family stories, great stories from literature have been foundational to my own formation. When I was a child growing up in Jamestown, North Dakota, every summer our family would drive from North Dakota to Colorado Springs to visit family and also our cabin. Sometimes we'd do the 800-mile trip in one day, sometimes we'd do it in two shorter days, but whatever the configuration, to me, as a child, the trip seemed endless. 
Our Volvo station wagon did not have air conditioning, but it did have those sticky blue vinyl seats and a family dog panting over your shoulder every mile of the way. To help pass the time, at some point in each trip, our dad would tell us stories. Stories of his under-supervised childhood in Colorado. Stories of high school humiliations, college trials, European vacations on $1 a day, it was the 60s, terrible first jobs, epic mountain adventures, and there were probably more stories of epic mountain misadventures. He seemed to have story after story ready to roll, and these stories, of course, you know, made the time go quicker, but they also taught my brother Mark, right here, and me about failure. Our family, the places we knew, and the places we had yet to go. I remember these stories. I remember quietly sitting in the back seat, listening summer after summer, and slowly my dad's, our dad's stories became my stories and gave me a sense of history, of belonging, of calling, and of faith. Through my work in educational ministry in this church, I have had the great joy of telling the stories of our faith to the children of this church and community. And during each season of small groups, I've led an after-school group of older elementary middle school kiddos. They meet on Monday mornings. This past Lent, like many of you, we studied parables. Those are the stories that Jesus told. It was all going really swimmingly. It was a great group. I mean, the parable of the lost coin, lovely. The parable of the lost sheep, moving. The parable of the seeds and the soils, I mean, we could have talked for days about that one. It was all going swimmingly until we hit the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Now, if you don't remember, that's the parable where an owner goes out and hires some workers throughout the course of the day. At the end of the day, regardless of when the worker was hired, whether it was 6 a.m., 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 5 p.m., the owner of the vineyard pays the workers the same amount, the same amount regardless of how long they worked or what work they did. And when we got to the end of this story, that circle erupted in outrage. They cried, it is not fair. This is just like when I do all the work for the group project, but everybody gets the same grade. One fellow savagely noted that if this everybody getting paid the same was going to be the deal, he was going to join the 5 p.m.ers tomorrow. Elizabeth Steele, my co-leader and I, we said, friends, this parable is not an HR manual. It is an illustration of God's extravagant grace. But those middle schoolers were not buying what we were selling. 
They had gone from passively receiving a story like young me in the back seat of that station wagon, or the little ones who sit up here so attentively each Sunday. They'd gone from passively receiving it to actively wrestling with it, talking to the characters, second-guessing the outcome, trying to figure out what the story teaches. And this is awesome. This is good. We want our kiddos to take these stories so seriously that they grapple with them, like Jacob grappling, wrestling with the angel and demanding a blessing. We want them to explore, question, and discuss. I mean, the disciples questioned Jesus all the time. Our first scripture lesson that I told to the kids today is another example of a great story from Exodus, or Genesis. Earlier in chapter 12, God formed a relationship with Abram, soon to become Abraham. God chose he and Sarah to be the great matriarch and patriarch of the family of God and promised countless more descendants, more descendants than there were stars in the sky. As I described to our little ones, the decades passed, but no babies came. What I did not describe to the little ones is that at a couple of points, Abraham and Sarah become impatient and try and jumpstart the promise, get things going. Abraham asked God to accept his trusted servant, Eleazar, as a stand-in heir. No. Sarah encouraged Abraham to father a child through her servant, Hagar, took complicated results. But as we were reminded today, at 90, Sarah finally had a child. They named him Isaac. The promise was finally fulfilled after years of doubt, waiting, grief, longing. Sarah's doubt and discouragement and loss of hope was not the last word. Nothing is impossible with God. So Sarah is an imperfect hero, and I empathize with her. It's hard to endure amidst affliction, to keep up positivity in the face of failure. It's difficult, sometimes even impossible, to believe in an ancient, outdated promise. Sarah's skepticism is reasonable. It's hard-earned, it's well-earned, and it squares with our own experience this broken world you and I know, friends, that this side of life, not all prayers are answered. In the years I've worked and served this church, I've organized a lot of programs. I've told dozens of stories, led events, trips, hosted groups and gatherings. And in the last couple of months, uh, you all have been so kind and so gracious to me. The kind words keep coming and many of you have commented on my cheerfulness. <laughs> my can-do attitude and my pluck. But here's the deal, and I feel like at this point in our relationship I can tell you this. Before each of these programs, trips, gatherings, whatever, I struggle with bad attitude. Capital B, capital A, bad attitude. It happens, like clockwork. 
one month before vacation Bible school when the craft supplies are back ordered, registration numbers are low, and those key volunteer spots still go unfilled. It happens the week before the craft fair when the crush of those Advent celebrations overwhelm. It happens at 2 p.m. on a Friday night when the endearing mayhem, mostly endearing mayhem, of Club 345 is about to crash into the building. It happens when I am wrestling with how to tell a Bible story from a book not at all written for children to children. I become a version of Sarah. This program is not going to work. It was a dumb plan in the first place. Who came up with this plan? I am too old for this. In those moments, frustration, like Sarah, doubt, discouragement, overwhelm. But here's where the stories of our faith become more than stories we've received, stories we've wrestled with. They can become models for getting perspective, changing behavior, and finding paths forward. If Sarah, despite grief, profound discouragement, bitterness, if Sarah can emerge from that tent in the middle of the hot day to break bread and welcome strangers, prepare the feast, show hospitality, then surely I can send out a few emails, get the goldfish ready, and plan some games. And who knows? The Lord just might show up at Club 345 tonight. As the people of God, we are blessed with a whole, whole big book, page after page of stories that all together tell the story of salvation. Stories of folks not that different from you and me, called by God to spread the word of God in their context and community. Stories of folks who hear and believe and wrestle with the promises of God. We are called to honestly tell these stories to our children, to tell these stories to ourselves, to hear, interact, grapple, and learn from them. We learn, of course, through the witness and teachings of Jesus. But we also learn from the deeply human, imperfect stories of our forebearers, Rebecca, Jacob, Abigail, David, Peter, Sarah. It's a messy family of faith. Our Christian story is particularly remarkable and unique, friends, in that we already know the ending. Of course, we know that Sarah gives birth to Isaac and begins a people called by God. We know that these people of God tried and failed, tried and failed to follow God's plan. We know that God sent his only son, Jesus, born of brave Mary, to spread love, forgiveness, and the good news to all people. We know that Jesus was killed and God raised Jesus from the dead, defeating sin and death forever. We've told these stories, read these stories, sung these stories, heard these stories. We know how they end. But here's what we also know. 
We also know that the ending of this great on, we know the ending of this great ongoing story of salvation. In fact, we are told the ending right at the beginning. The Gospel of John begins with the biggest spoiler of all time. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. Today's passage from Romans by Paul states as a theological principle what our story today illustrates. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Paul's words are often read as encouragement or advice, a Bible verse to post in your kitchen or stick up by your desk, but they are not merely inspirational or aspirational. They are declarative of what has already been done. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God. Peace is now. Our faith in Christ will not ever disappoint. Hope will never put us to shame. The ending is already written. It all reminds me of those interviews that you sometimes see after a truly excellent TV series wraps up. The cast, the writers, the producers come together to talk about the characters they've played and the story arc they created. The best writers of the best series often say, we knew how the whole thing would end right from the beginning, but we didn't know exactly how we were gonna get there. Over the past five seasons, support characters grew into main characters, initial plot lines petered out, and new surprising ones emerged. But we always knew what the last scene, maybe even the last line would be. In today's story, we find Sarah at a point in her life when faith is faltering. She's overwhelmed with suffering, Endurance has run out. Hope has, so far, only brought disappointment and shame. But despite all of this, the promise was fulfilled. God's plan kept going. God's plan keeps going. True hope is not the naive belief or expectation that life will be free of trials, loss, disappointment, True hope is the sure knowledge that we know the ending of the story and that it will be a triumphant, joyful, most happy ending. This is long-term, long-haul, end-times, cross-generational hope. As the people of God, we know we need to be reminded that even when we don't see it, when we can't feel it, that goodness is stronger than evil, light overcomes darkness, and hope does not disappoint. 
We boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In closing, I heard a quote a few years ago that has stuck with me. It pops up in TV shows, a movie or two, and this quote is attributed eclectically to John Lennon, Oscar Wilde, and maybe most reliably the Brazilian author Domingos Sabino. <clears throat> Given this quote's wobbly provenance, <clears throat> please forgive additional edits with uh, gratitude to the Apostle Paul. So here is the quote. Through the faith of Christ, that's Paul's part, through the faith of Christ, everything will be all right in the end. If it is not all right, it is not the end. Amen.